Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like decay, decency and decarbonisation, and disgust. <laughs> Excellent. Or prancing, dancing and chancing. Or, Sam, especially for Valentine's Day last week, romancing, enhancing and lancing. <laughs> lancing is a... It's, it's mod- med- medical history meets boils. Meets chivalry, nice. I think. Medical history <clears throat> boils meets jousting. Yes, I think lan- good, lancing. However, we are we are digressing because what we should be doing and what we will be doing is following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining very carefully indeed how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of pajamas is in fact all about festive Christmas family traditions. Yes, you've guessed it. It's all about matching family Christmas pyjamas. It's all about the prehistory of pyjamas in the 16th and 17th century. It's about Samuel Pepys and the Great Fire of London. It's also all about Robert Louis Stevenson and pilots in pyjamas. Who knew? Who knew? Or who knew that the history of embarrassment is all about the science of blushing, Charles Darwin, politeness, cultural taboos, social humiliation, Nazi Germany and cultures of shaming. Did you know that? Of course you did. Very good. Very enjoyable. Uh, You're probably wondering who's telling you all this wonderful information. Let me tell you about my fellow presenter. Now, if history were a cocktail bar, right... This man would be the bartender. Yes, the Brian Flanagan, a.k.a. Tom Cruise from Cocktail. The mixologist of the past, knocking you up a Bloody Mary, a Rob Roy or his favourite, the Old Fashioned. Pumping your veins with the alcoholic adrenaline of enrapture with all things that have gone before. He is your favourite quencher of your thirst for knowledge. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hey, James. Hello, Sam. I love that introduction. That's it's superb. I love be, the idea of being the, the cocktail maestro of history. Uh, I had quite a, a lot of fun um, going through cocktails, trying to work out which ones were linked to history. There are loads. <laughs> I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are. I've, I've, I've had none of them. Um, You may well be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode. Well, let's just say that if he were a thirst-related historian, he he has an unquenchable thirst for historical knowledge. So gasping is he to drink from the cup of archival discovery, so parched does he feel when crawling through the desert of scholarly inertia. Raging is his desire to drink deeply from the wellspring of years gone past. No slurping, burping or spilling will occur when he finally finds a receptacle from which to imbibe. It is no poisoned historical chalice from which he sips. No cerebob because you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer Dr Sam Willis. <laughs> Surrey Bob, here I am. Hello, everyone. Hello, <clears throat> hello. We should do the history of. We, are, we, we said we were going to do the history of Chris's. I think we should do the history of Bob's as well. Oh, Bob's is a good. Idea. You haven't done names at all, but that's quite a fun thing. Um, but today we are doing the history of thirst. If you haven't worked it all out, um, I know. Um, Lots of you out there were doing dry January. I then campaigned for long Christmas, whereby you don't cut down any of your overeating or drinking and you carry on. And it's taken me to the middle of February and I've been so ruined by so many months of overindulgence. I have given up drinking. So, um, and James, you haven't had a drop since uh, the new year, have you? No, I, and I'm, I'm, that's it. That's it. 
I, I, I put it down here. Um, that's it for quite a while. Um, mm. And I'm feeling yeah. very, I'm feeling very good. I've lost a stone in weight. Uh, for those of you who aren't in the United Kingdom and don't understand those bizarre sort of um, weights and measures that we have here, um, it's about 14 pounds, and that's quite a lot. It's quite a lot. I'm looking very yeah. svelte and elegant, Sam. I put, it all down to, I put it all down to giving up red wine. Uh, so uh, long may it continue. And I'm not thirsty either. So No. Well, so the talk was tea. about we do thirst um, because it was all to do with whether we were thirsty for alcohol or not thirsty for alcohol. Anyway, there are, it turns out, an enormous ways of thinking about the history of thirst. It's um, turned out to be a true histories of the unexpected classic, and I've massively enjoyed looking into it. Um, I did a, a bit of idle research, James, looking into famous teetotalers to see whose feet I was going to... Um, into whose shoes I was going to tread, into whose feet, whose feet I was going to strap to the end of my legs and put their <laughs> shoes on. Um, I thought you were and, going to kiss, uh, kiss the feet of various historians. But, yeah, but famous, no. famous sober people, because um, weirdly, I, I, I knew I could write you a list of, of famous boozers from the past, uh, but I couldn't write you a list of famous teetotalers. And um, the first ones that struck me, which I came across as interesting, is both Joe Biden and Donald Trump don't drink. No. Uh, nor does Richie Sunak, the British Chancellor of the Exchequer. So a lot of people kind of in power at the moment who don't drink. And, of course, um, Hitler. <laughs> so uh, there's a list for you. Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Rishi Sunak and Hitler don't drink. Very yes. good. Very good. Very good company. Ewan McGregor doesn't drink either. Uh, he oh. used to and then, and then gave it up. I remember reading a very interesting article by him quite a, quite a while ago. I didn't go down the, the, the drink, the alcohol route... Uh, I, I started, and I've got a little bit um, on the temperance movement. There's some really interesting material culture and documents that survive. But for me, the rabbit hole that I went down was water. And actually, it could have been a podcast about water. And I do wonder whether we right. should pick that up. And it's a, there's a really interesting history about how water has been controlled across the past and it's one of those things that we th we think of as an inalienable natural you know public right a, a human right to access to water but across so many different cultures and countries um and pasts it has been controlled and politicized and has a fascinating history in itself and then the other rabbit hole that i went down was also connected to water and it it wasn't necessarily about access to water in that sort of global sense but it was about exploration and deserts and not having access to water on journeys and I imagine you're probably going to go down that slightly with what you're going to do it but I, I, I thought Sam will be talking about water on board ships so I've got to do ah. something different and I've got I found this brilliant example of a prospector who goes out um, I think he's in Arizona and he goes out on this enormous sort of um, expedition to try and reclaim uh, a mine that he's found. And he turns up six and a half days later, half dead, emaciated. Uh, and the guy who finds him at a camp makes a study of him and, and the, mm. the impact that this is that this sort of this thirst has had on him, you know, being starved from water. And, and so so I'm going to be talking about about um, endurance and desert smarts, I imagine, desert laws mm. and being able to go out, navigate your, your way around and physical endurance. Good. 
Interesting stuff. I've come across I some Shackleton so. stuff recently. The um, the explorer Ernest Shackleton, because mm. there is a um, expedition out there at the minute called Endurance Twenty Two, and what they're trying to do is to find his ship, the Endurance, which sank in the Weddell Sea in the uh, in the Southern Ocean of the Antarctic um, uh, in, in nineteen forty. Uh, very interesting stuff. Uh, I helped make the Channel Four film Shackleton. Um, long time ago now, 2004, 2005, mm. maybe I did not something know like that. that. I did not mm. know that. Uh, Kenneth Branagh uh, mm. was uh, was on on on. He was Shackleton. Um, we mm. had to sail up to the Arctic, not the Antarctic. We couldn't get all the ways to the Antarctic, but we 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 took a a sailing ship, which was a kind of a replica of the Endurance, filled it up with huskies, which is quite fun, and uh, covered it in ice sheeting, took it into the ice pack between Iceland and Greenland, and made made a wonderful film on Channel 4. I think you can still find it, and I'd urge you all to look at that. Anyway, uh, Shackleton, one of the most extraordinary uh, adventurers out there, uh, and he was a proper boozer. Very famously, um, I mean, he, he died on the 5th of January, 100 years ago this year, um, January 1922, he died. And he died uh, 3 o'clock in the morning. He was only 47 years old, um, which is not that much older than me, I have to say. Um, he it was it was off on another of his expeditions, was was enormously excited about it, but a bit, bit overexcited. And then he went to bed feeling very unwell, complaining of pain and discomfort. Anyway, he summons the the expedition's uh, doctor, Alexander Macklin, and who, who tells him off, tells him he's been overdoing it, that he should lead a more regular life. And Shackleton replies, well, you're always wanting me to give up things. What is it I ought to give up? And Macklin replies, chiefly alcohol, boss, <laughs> which is interesting. Uh, moments later, Shackleton dies. Uh, he was a proper drinker. And uh, interestingly, I came across this, I didn't know... Um, so many years before, when his his um, South Pole expedition between 1907 and 1909, they built kind of station huts along the way, expedition huts. And um, only recently, they were they were kind of uh, excavating the hut, having a nose around to see what was there. And they found five crates of whiskey buried beneath it. Wow, um, uh, which is good. It's a, it's, it's a good story, and it, I think it goes along with it. It's a very famous. Um, uh, saying by journalists who've travelled the world, uh, I think it was P.J. O'Rourke who said it originally, and they said there are two war- two rules of war reporting. One is don't forget the whiskey, and the second one is don't forget the whiskey, <laughs> which I thought was very good. So um, Shackleton, a very good example of someone who was uh, um, used to extreme thirst, but uh, not prepared to go out a certain specific type of whiskey to quench that thirst. Um, I enjoyed reading up about... Uh, um, Churchill particularly as well. I mean, he's he's a, a fascinating character. The amount that he drank, um, and I was particularly he was a boozer, wasn't com- he? Churchill. He was a proper, yeah. I properly uh, really enjoyed coming across his recipe for a Churchill martini, um, which has got only gin in it. it. Hasn't got any martini in it at all. He liked it so dry. He wanted to be able to see uh, see the vermouth in France, is what he said, and he'd just have a triple <laughs> only, gin. Only for breakfast. And then, <laughs> yeah, tu- a, a triple gin and call it a, a Churchill Martini, which I thought was rather, <laughs> rather good. Um, and, and vermouth as well, a very interesting. Uh, the history of vermouth I came across, and I loved that. Um, it was in, invented by an Italian guy, Benedetto Carpano from Turin, and hmm. it's named after the German word vermut, which um, means uh, absinthe, which is a herb that characterises the taste of 
of vermouth. And he's, he's, yeah, he's Italian. He's named it after a German word. And he does that because of his admiration of the German uh, poet and author Goethe, who uh, was a famous drinker himself and is responsible for some of the best quotes about drinking in history. Um, best of all, I think, is life is too short to drink bad wine. Oh, excellent, Sam. Excellent. Um, so I'm, I'm going to take us down a different, a different route, as I said, and I'm going to take us not from... Not, not down the alcohol route. I'm going to talk about water. And I, there are a couple of things that are really interesting things that I read on this. Um, one is a book by Norris Hundley Jr. Um, called The Great Thirst, Californians and Water. And it, it came out in a, a revised edition uh, a while back. But it's basically the, the story of California and the obsession that the Californians had with water... Um, you know, and this was something that was important, you know, culturally, physically, literally, uh, as well as politically. And it follows the history of California from its sort of, you know, from the sort of um, Native Americans through its sort of early Spanish and Mexican sort of immigrants period, and the ways in which these people used and shared the available water. Um, and there's very interesting sort of chapters on that. And then how the white American settlers arrive um, in increasing numbers. And they are, you know, this is the area of the gold rush. Um, water becomes, you know, a sort of hot, com hot commodity. Um, and they transform, um, you know, they, they transform the state into this sort of, um, you know, place where water is 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 sought by by all sorts of people you know wanting to use it for industry for the gold panning um you know wanting to profit from it control it manipulate it and this this sort of it, this sort of drives the sort of narrative of the book as you see all sorts of you know people getting involved with vested interests and it absolutely fascinating um, I encourage you all to go out and and have a, a read of it. Uh, it struck me, having read that, though, that water has a global history. And I came across a brilliant uh, paper by, um, by, a legal, by a lawyer, um, a legal professor at Duke University, um, interested in the history of drinking water. And it's a paper entitled Thirst, A Short History of Drinking Water um, from Duke Law School Legal Studies. It's a research paper published in December 2005. You can find it online, uh, as I did. Um, and it was, re it was really fascinating. Obviously, he's not a historian. He's not writing from that point of view. He's somebody who is interested in law across time. And in particular... He's interested in the value that water has within societies. And he traces that all the way back to uh, the Roman period and, he, and indeed before. And is really interested in, in particular, this idea of public access to water. So, in other words, how you stop people being thirsty. And he then traces that all the way through to the way in which water is dealt with in in developing countries and there's some really interesting bits there and then takes it to 
the present day you know where in partic- particularly you know the access that people around the world have to um drinking water is the key, in many ways the key to economic uh, and social success and he starts with starts with a really interesting um story in uh, a city in the andes the bolivian city of uh, if i pronounce this correctly cocabamba <laughs> Uh, which is in lies on the banks of the Roca River, um, and this is a developing country. Forty percent of Cucumbers, eight hundred thousand residents have no had no access to water supply. Even those that he says did did have it, uh, it was a really uh, unreliable um, service. The pipes were were terrible, and what this means is that. Um, there was an attempt to sort of bring in drinking water. It was done by um, private um, means rather than by the state. And what this means then is that the, uh, he writes here, the cruel irony is that the poorest end up paying much more for their water than wealthier citizens connected to the city's water mains. And and in, there were echoes with what happens in, in our country at the moment. We're seeing, this is in the United Kingdom, we're seeing energy prices going up. And in fact, those people that are most disadvantaged are the poorest in society who have metres for their gas and electric and have to put money in or tokens or whatever in slots um, uh, charge cards and they pay a much higher rate than other people do and that just to me seems deeply unfair and it's exactly what you're seeing what you're seeing in in Bolivia and this led to a wave of, of sort of real reaction against it so some days of, of protests um, and something called the Cucumba, um Declaration, which stated that water is a fundamental human right and a public trust to be guarded by all levels of government. Therefore, it should not be commodified, privatised or traded for commercial purposes. And the paper goes on to talk about, you know, the way in which we conceptualise and commoditise water. Obviously, it's a physical resource, it's a cultural resource, it's a social resource. In other words, access to water tells you so much about society. It's a political resource and also it's a, it's an economic resource. And the big he's, he's asking, you know, really big questions about how societies set themselves up, their views of themselves, their sense of equity... And there are some big research questions that he's trying to unpack. How have different societies thought about drinking water in the past? How have different societies managed access to drinking water? And how have these changed over time? A fascinating article. I encourage people to go out and and have a look at it. It's It's got brilliant sections on ancient and indigenous societies. In other words, how these particular societies have um, have controlled or allowed ready access to sources of drinking water. And you can see this in some of the written sources. You can see it in some of the, the early archaeology when you have a look at the... the the ways in which water was pet fed or piped to you know various civilizations there are examples of it the incas in machu picchu uh, for example and the way in which they were 
you know, they were challenged in being able to get water up sort of, you know, 7,000 feet, but nonetheless managed to do it to get it to the city's residents. He then talks through traditional laws. So, for example, traditional Jewish water law. Uh, the base, And we're talking here about as far back as 3000 BC, and the basic rule was that water was something that was common property that's reflected in the Talmud, so these sort of religious writings, that which we, there's, a, there's a phrase in there that rivers and streams forming springs, these belong to every man. And then he traces it in traditional Islamic water law. The Quran, for example, argues that anyone who gives water to a living creature will be rewarded. To the man who refuses his surplus water, Allah will say, Today I refuse thee my favour, just as thou refused the surplus of something that thou hadst not made thyself. So it's enshrined throughout this Zimbabwe indigenous water law. You know, they're, they're, wells and boreholes are built for private purposes, he's arguing here, but actually they, the intention was to make them available for communal drinking water. He also looks at, um, he also looks at uh, Ab Australian Aboriginal water law. And um, this, is, this is really interesting because the idea is that, you know, you've got one of the parts of the world that are, that is the most... The, the hottest sort of regions um, and there is real scarcity of water and you know, it's a really valuable uh, commodity so much so that water sources if you think about how aboriginals peoples um, you know think about their world in terms of the dreamscape water sources are among the most sacred you know parts here and there are various rules about how you treat those water sources. So, you know, you wouldn't start a fire near a water hole or you wouldn't defecate near it. And there are there are punishments laid out for how you, you know, how you treat people who have, you know, transgressed in those particular ways. And th there is a sense in which water management is plays a really key role within within their culture. Um, but but it is and there is there is there are issues around access but there is the idea that you know you ha you if you ask you would be given permission uh to you'd be given permission to to drink of the water so one one aboriginal expert he he um quotes here the knowledge that those with plenty today will be supplicants themselves in the future means that sharing is encoded and embedded within all social relations, trade, marriage, ceremony and others. The code is reciprocity. Not only is the precept always ask essential, in other words, that you, you know, you, you ask whether you can actually take some, some, somebody else's water, but so too is the fact that people are almost never refuse so it's almost this sort of politeness protocol in rome it, it's really interesting um there's a section on rome where he talks about the provision of the city's city's drinking water partly what's what i found really interesting here is that while water piped water is you know given to ev to everyone not only is, if you have your own your own private water going to a private residence this becomes a status symbol and connected to senatorial luxury but also providing 
the uh, providing drinking water is in fact a political statement that yes there is drinking water but it is you know it's to remind the common people that it is from the sort of the beneficence of the emperor uh, himself and so there's something you know quite controlling there he then goes through uh, new york city through london and then what i th- what i think is really interesting is discussions about the develop- developing world and there's a lovely sort of section there where he talks about the significance that this has on people and as a gender historian i'm really interested you know not simply in terms of the supply infrastructure you know and the inequalities that lack of access to water has but also that gathering water going out and finding water is something that is incredibly labor intensive so it often takes hours and this is a task that is often given to women and to girls and the estimate here that he gives is that um, the largest study of water gathering in East Africa found that women spent an average of 17.5 hours a week gathering water in Senegal and 15.3 hours weekly in Mozambique. So we think about, you know, you feel thirsty, you want a glass of water, you want a bath, you want a shower, you f- want to flush a toilet and you think nothing of sort of pressing a tap. But imagine having to travel you know, long distances to find water and how that completely changes the structure of your lives. You know, women who are spending that amount of time doing those things, it is completely unemancipating for them. You know, the lack of agency they have, the drudgery that they have, the way in which it takes them away from, from the home, from the family, prevents them having other kinds of paid work. So there we are, Sam. That's sort of thirst in a sort of global water-related way. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hmm. Amazing. Um, it was amazing. It is amazing. Totally amazing. Yeah, yeah. Who knew the, um, about water? 
Yeah, yeah. The, the, the Romans side of things is particularly interesting. And, um, and also the, uh, access to water in the Renaissance, which I'm going to talk about in our next episode on the history of surprise, which is rather good. Um, all these wonderful surprise fountains in, um, in the, the gardens of Italian villas. Brilliant stuff. Um, I... W- do you remember when we did our previous episode on the history of corpses? And yes. I talked about body farms. So the, the idea here, guys, is that uh, you, to, for, you, for, for us to know scientifically what happens to a corpse over time, you need to get a corpse and you need to study it. And it hadn't been done properly or, or systematically by scientists until the 70s, I think it was, surprisingly recently. So they set up a body farm in America and it allow, allowed them to understand the stages of decomposition. Um but uh, obviously it had to be done, you know, kind of regulated. Now, the the same question sort of applies to the, the idea of first. So how do you systematically study the effects of dehydration on someone, considering the fact that you're not allowed to deprive people of water on purpose and then note down what happens to them? And uh, one of the answers to that is being able to uh, look back in history at times where people suffered from dehydration and look at historical accounts of dehydration. And one of the ones that was um, very well recorded um, are the experiences of United States soldiers in the desert during the Second World War, where uh, a series of doctors used the opportunity to observe and identify the symptoms of severe dehydration. Um, uh, caused specifically, obviously, by a lack of an intake of water in heat. And uh, it's fascinating uh, what they came up with. But um, just very briefly, the sensation of thirst was noticeable quite early in the process. That's not very surprising. But the point is, it didn't increase very much afterwards as the water deficit continued. What happened next was actually muscular fatigue. So the thirst stays, but it doesn't get worse. So then you have muscle fatigue, then you have a a stage of anorexia. And then by the time that five to eight percent of the body water is lost, then people become what is described as fatigue and spiritless. Uh, The tongue begins to swell. Swallowing becomes impossible. The eyes retreat into their orbits and then delirium followed. It's pretty, pretty tough reading. Um, but one of the things you can do then is you can sort of take this understanding of what happens and then apply it to different periods where we don't know specifically what the effects were, but we know people were suffering from thirst. And one of these is the the, the terrible middle passage of the slave trade. So what you've got here are uh, Africans being herded on board ships uh, on the west coast of Africa and taken to the Caribbean. And there are um, a, a number of, uh, of accounts of the slaves suffering uh, appallingly during the Middle Passage. A lot of them collected during um, uh, the gathering of testimony by British abolitionists. So people who wanted to, to end the slave trade went out and got as much evidence as they can. Here we have evidence of Captain Hayes who uh, speaks of of the the human cargo labouring under the most famishing thirst, being in very few instances allowed more than a pint of water a day. Uh, Another captain, Thomas Clarkson, claimed that he had seen slaves almost dying from want of water. Uh, Thomas Buxton alleged that there is nothing which slaves during the Middle Passage suffer from so much as want of water. 
Uh, and there's a lot of um, uh, similar information from the Brazilian trade. So this is, uh, this is slaves going down to Brazil. Um, very simple quote here. They're affected very much by a short ration of water. Uh, a male slave uh, commented, we suffered very much for want of water, but was denied all we needed. A pint a day was all that was allowed, and many slaves died on the passage. And there are a huge number of these, actually. A um, great number of the slaves tried to jump overboard without to drink without considering that it was salt water. Uh, and when questioned about the amount of water given to slaves, one captain here said that in one case water was only given in a teacup full every three days. So it's very tough reading there, but it allows us to, you know, apply our, our understanding itself gathered from historical accounts back into um, periods like this where we know people were suffering from thirst. Um, there's lots more you could um, talk about, about the exact conditions of slaves they were suffering uh, and how that affected their thirst. But primarily the problem is that um, it's very hot there. I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious to say, but the, um, say, take coastal Nigeria, um, it's, it's a bit over 80 degrees Fahrenheit. The humidity is always high, at least... Uh, 77%. The hottest months are November to May, but it's exactly those months when the slaves were most likely shipped for the Caribbean because the uh, captains were trying to avoid the hurricane months, which followed so July through to September. One slave trader actually estimated the temperature below deck was 120 degrees, um, which is entirely plausible. Um, but also, you have to consider that no one's going to survive being being packed in that much, and the cargo was very valuable. And because of this, it means that there were vents, there were gratings, um, you have wind sails which which take water, uh, air down below. Slaves are allowed to, in theory, to exercise on deck, but of course that can't happen at all uh, when the sea was rough or when there were um, people out there trying to capture the slaves and the slave ships. And all in all, it was um, it was a, a, an appalling experience and characterised, I think, by uh, the most appalling overcrowding and extreme thirst. Gosh, that's a very moving history, Sam. Very moving. Very, um, yeah, um, difficult sort of way to go with um, the topic of thirst. So Martin, I'm going to take us along that line as well and I'm going to tell you all about a really fascinating character called Pablo Valencia have you ever heard of Pablo Valencia? No but I'd like to, I want to know what he's done Okay, he was a, a prospector uh, in the turn of the turn of the 19th into the 20th century uh, no, think August 1905 in Arizona, so very very hot part of of uh, North America um, in the Sonoran Desert, that sort of area, which is you know very sort of um, drought ridden, and he goes off for six and a half days, and uh, he's going off trying to discover a mine that he found at a previous date and was coming back with a companion called Jesus uh, Rios and they come and try and lay claim to this and he basically gets lost for six and a half days comes back to a base camp where in the um, Tinayas Atlas uh, area 
um, where he is found by a man called W.J. McGee, who is a man who is there in this camp. Um, he's, he's there to treat his own cancer that he has, but also he's somebody who is making a study of the desert area. And what happens is Pablo Valencia comes along uh, with his companion trying to find this mine, um, comes across McGee. Um, they, they're both sort of quite surprised to see each other. Uh, he sets off from McGee's camp, goes off and basically, you know, gets <laughs> wanders around for six and a half days in the summer and has had took a small amount of water with him uh on this on this journey uh gets lost uh and turns up in an absolutely you know terrible state so mcgee writes a very vivid description of him turning up so get this um in the graying dawn of wednesday august 23rd and remember it's in the year 1905 the grasp of sleep on me relaxed in a vivid dream, recalling a picture often presented in the Ganderos, uh, half-wild cattle ranges of western Sonora, the picture of an orderly file of stock led by a stalwart bull and trailing down to yearlings in the rear, the leader iterating his grave grumbling roar of assurance to the herd, which at last, as on the range, rose in quick crescendo into the ear-piercing bellow of challenge and defiance to all other kind. I awoke at the dream sound to realise its actuality and turned my head, half expecting to see the herd. Instead, there stood Jose, just arisen from his blanket, looking down the arroyo. Seeing my movement, he asked, "'What is it?' I thought it was one of them roaring lions like in the zoo. Now fully awake, I replied, "'It must be Pablo. Take the canteen.' Though wholly incredulous, he mechanically seized a canteen and a strip of manta, which with his coat made a pillow, and, after a call in reply, ran down the trail. I soon followed, carrying another canteen and a medicine case, and on the arroyo sands under an ironwood tree at the foot of the Mesita de los Muertos, uh, with its two score cross marked graves, came on the wreck of Pablo, with Jose already ministering unto him. And here's the description Pablo was stark naked. His formerly full muscled legs and arms were shrunken and scrawny. His ribs ridged out like those of a starveling horse. His habitually plethoric abdomen was drawn in almost against his vertebral column. His lips had disappeared as if amputated, leaving low edges of blackened tissue. His teeth and gums projected like those of a skinned animal, but the flesh was black and dry as a hank of jerky. The nose was withered and shrunken to half its length, the nostril lining showing black. His eyes were set in a winkless stare with surrounding skin so contracted as to expose the conjunctiva. 
itself black as the gums, his face was dark as a negro, and his skin generally turned a ghastly purplish yet ashen grey, with great livid blotches and streaks. His lower legs and feet, with forearms and hands, were torn and scratched by contact with thorns and sharp rocks, yet even the freshest cuts were as so many scratches in dry leather, without trace of blood or serum, his joints and bones stood out like those of a wasting sickling, though the skin clung to them in a way suggesting shrunken rawhide used in repairing a broken wheel. From inspection and handling I estimated his weight at 115 to 120 pounds. We soon found him deaf to all but loud noises, and so blind as to distinguish nothing save light and dark. The mucous membrane lining mouth and throat was shriveled, cracked and blackened, and his tongue shrunken to a mere bunch of black integument. His respiration was slow, spasmodic, and accompanied by a deep guttural moaning or roaring, the sound that had awakened us a quarter of a mile away. His extremities were cold as the surrounding air. No pulsation could be detected at wrists, and there was apparently little, if any, circulation beyond the knees and elbows. The heartbeat was slow, irregular, fluttering, and almost ceasing in the longer intervals between stertorous breathings. And so it, so it goes on, and basically they, they sort of, you know, treat him have to have to sort of leave the camp take him off to to be treated and 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 he recovers you know only to come back you know a couple of months later prospecting again but this is one of the most important um observations of somebody who is suffering from dehydration uh and you know and really really extreme thirst uh in the in the desert uh, and it's one of those sort of foundational studies um, that he that he had published it, in a in an article called Desert Thirst as Disease by W. J. McGee. So there we are, Sam. Uh, a little bit of a um, little bit of more detail on your uh, discussion of, uh, of of thirst and dehydration. Mm, it makes me think we should do hunger. Oh, God, that makes me feel hungry. I'm so hungry at the moment. <laughs> Not drinking mm. makes me really ravenous. Mm. Thirst and hunger all together. We <sighs> should do hunger. And also, we're, we're recording this in the grip of storm... Uh, what's it called? Eugenie? Eunice or something? What's this <laughs> terrible storm? I think it's... A, there are, I think it's Eunice. Um, it's Eunice. Well, well, maybe you think we should do wind as well. I was thinking we should do wind. Yes. Mm. I think wind and water. Be... So we could, um, yeah, you want to do water. We could do wind and water. We could do the elements, James. Let's do the elements. And uh, a bit of hunger as well. Excellent. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed our history of thirst. I hugely enjoyed it. There was many, uh, much, much more material there as well. Certainly more for another episode. We might cook up a, a thirst too for you guys at some point. Um, uh, do please follow me on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you're interested in uh, maritime stories, the history of the sea, do please listen to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Plenty of water there, I imagine. And if you want to follow me on social media, you can follow me on Twitter at James Daybell. You can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram and Facebook. So come and make friends there. Check out our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, for 
all our back catalogue and signed copies of our books. And should you wish to support what we are doing to change the way in which people think about the past, you could indeed become a patron of Histories of the Unexpected and head over to patreon.com where we have a little page and you can you can uh, sponsor us, um, which would be lovely. Um, but meanwhile, I hope you're all safe and sound. Uh, the the storm will have gone by the time you're listening to this. Uh, but I hope you survived the storm. Uh, and if if you had sort of wild happenings, you know, freakish things that happened in your area, hit us up on social media and tell us all about them. That'd be fantastic mm. to hear. Yes, we'll come back to with, with the history of, of wind. We'll do the history yes. of wind, but you should listen to our history of accidents as well to give give, Ooh, give yourself a bit of context should. if you see a tree falling down. That's it for now, guys. We'll be back again soon. Cheerio. Take care, guys. Bye. <laughs>